Uh, you know, in the last two decades of the 20th century, a wave of people power movements based upon the principles of nonviolent action erupted throughout the non-democratic world, from the anti-apartment movements in South Africa to people power movements in the Philippines to the anti-regime challenge in Burma. Yet while some people power campaigns succeed in changing the course of history, Others fail to bring about democratic change. The obvious question is why? Why does it work in some contexts and not in others? And can nonviolence really counter non-democratic regimes that have the machinations of state at their disposal? Here to talk about this is Professor Kurt Schock. He's a professor of sociology at Rutgers University, my alma mater. He studies strategic nonviolent conflict and social movements. His current research is on land reform movements in the global south. His book, Unarmed Insurrections, People Power Movements in Non-Democracies, received the Best Book of the Year Award from the Comparative Democratization Section of the American Political Science Association. He serves as an advisor to the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict in Washington, D.C. He was a visiting scholar at Harvard University at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs as well as the Australian Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Queensland. And if that isn't enough, he was actually my neighbor when I was in grad school. Professor Schock, uh, welcome to KUCI. Thank you, Jarrett. You know, I still have the uh, the table and uh, the little breakfast bar you gave me, so I want to thank you for that. You do. Well, good, good. I'm glad to hear it's being put to good use. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in, and uh, if you could tell our listeners uh, the meaning of the title of your book, what exactly are unarmed insurrections? Um, well, what I call unarmed insurrections are often referred to as people power movements. That is, they're organized challenges to state power that tend to be decentralized and have a diffuse leadership. They're civilian-based, importantly, and they have a widespread support throughout the population. Um, unarmed insurrections, they depend primarily on methods of nonviolent action. So I, I would classify unarmed insurrections as being an alternative strategy for promoting change that differs from both conventional politics on the one hand and violent resistance on the other. So then what are the tactics of unarmed insurrections? When you hear the word insurrection, you usually think of you know, something violent, you know, whether it's uh, children throwing bricks in uh, a so-called developing nation or whether it's uh, some kind of mob rule. So when you talk about uh, people power and nonviolence, what kind of tactics or strategies are we talking about? Um, well, when by nonviolence um, in my book, I'm talking about strategic nonviolent conflict. That is, I write about a pragmatic and strategic method or waging a conflict with one's opponents. So I think we can make a distinction between pragmatic and principled nonviolence. And pragmatic nonviolence, which characterizes the unarmed insurrections, um, can be considered a form of nonviolence in which people use those methods because of their perceived effectiveness. In other words, nonviolence is viewed as being a means for prosecuting a conflict rather than as a lifestyle. Um, more specifically, there are what scholars refer to as methods of nonviolent action. 
Obviously, these don't involve violence or the threat of violence against human beings, but rather they involve an active process of bringing political, economic, or social pressure to bear in the wielding of power in contentious interactions between collective acts, between collective actors. Excuse me. Um, so these are extra institutional actions, such as methods of protest and persuasion methods of non-cooperation, methods of disruptive intervention, and methods of creative intervention. I think that's an important distinction. I was writing furiously as, uh, as you were talking about pragmatic versus principled, because it seems like that might come into play when we get into some uh, specific case studies of, of what works and, and what doesn't work. When I think of just uh, nonviolent strategies domestically, there are distinctions between uh, strategies of direct action, whether it's uh, boycotts or non-cooperation or things of that nature, versus simply symbolic actions or, or bearing witness, where you're not necessarily engaging in a strategy of intervention. You're simply trying to communicate a principle. Is that something similar to what you're t discussing? Um, in a sense, yes. Um... The distinction that I make, um, let me elaborate, principled nonviolence is characterized by a commitment to nonviolence for ethical reasons. That is, those engaged in principled nonviolence often adopt nonviolence as a lifestyle, and they're unwilling to use violence under any circumstances. Pragmatic nonviolence or strategic nonviolent conflict refers to a means for prosecuting a conflict. That is, people engage in methods of nonviolent action because they view them as the most effective means for challenging their opponent, undermining their opponent's power, and um, bringing about social change. So it, it's more, yeah, okay, so it's more practical. It's more a consideration when you talk about pragmatic of what will work as opposed to just a moral or ethical stance that one will not use violence under any circumstances. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the kinds of uh, tactics uh, that we're talking about, anything from what, civil disobedience, strikes, rent, boycotts, what kinds of specific strategies are we referring to in, in your book? Okay. Well, a common way to classify methods of nonviolent action are... Um, three broad classes, methods of protest and persuasion. That would include things like protest demonstrations, marches, rallies, um, collective display of symbols. Um, secondly, there are methods of non-cooperation. Um, these refer to things like boycotts, strikes, various forms of civil disobedience. And then thirdly, there are methods of intervention. And I think we can make a useful distinction between disruptive methods of intervention and creative methods of intervention. Disruptive intervention, these would include things like sit-ins, blockades, obstruction, nonviolent sabotage, land occupations. In other words, these are things that are trying to upset the, the status quo, um, upset the, the existing social relations. Creative intervention, on the other hand, are things that involve creating, develop, um, creating parallel institutions or alternative institutions outside the, the control of the government. I want to remind listeners they're in tune to KUCI's Justice or Justice. We're talking with Professor Kurt Schock. 
about his book, Unarmed Insurrections, and I should let listeners know it's available at University of Minnesota Press. When we talk about these things, they sound like, you know, to, they sound mamby-pamby. I can't think of any other word <laughs> to, uh, to use, although certainly my listeners know that these are things that I have done uh, in the past domestically. Uh, how is it possible that uh, these kinds of strategies could actually prove effective against, uh, I mean, it's one thing to, to engage in these strategies in open and, and free societies, if you will. It's another thing uh, in some rather uh, militaristic and dictatorial uh, contexts. So how does nonviolence work? And I know that that could take up an entire hour, but if there's any way to succinctly explain how it works. Um. Yeah, Jared, you made you made some good points there. Um, one of the misconceptions about nonviolent struggle, I think, is that it works only in democracies or against soft targets. Okay, and I, I would I would consider that to be a misconception. Um, I mean, if you just look at the history of the pa over the past couple decades throughout um, throughout the world, many very brutal, repressive regimes were overturned by their own citizens who withdraw their, their support from the government and engaged in these so-called mamby-pamby methods of nonviolent action. Um, and I think, I think that um, states, they actually prefer when their citizens challenge them through methods of violence because then they have legitimacy when they respond with violence. Okay, um, I, w I would argue that the comparative advantage of the people, of the citizens, is with nonviolent resistance, not with the violent methods of the state. In other words, rather than challenging the state on its own terms through methods of violence, the state is challenged through means in which the citizens have the comparative advantage, in which they can use their, their numbers to their advantage, their refusal to cooperate with the government to, to their own advantage. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I had a chance to thumb through some of the middle chapters of your book last night that I haven't looked at for a while. And, uh, you know, getting back to your distinction between, uh, you know, pragmatic versus principled, uh, you use the term uh, political jujitsu, which uh, I am familiar as described as moral jujitsu. But I think what you just referred to, um, it's one thing to to engage in an opponent on your moral terms. But what you're suggesting is engaging your opponent on your political or strategic terms. And so is that what you mean by political jujitsu? Um, yeah, I do use that term, political jujitsu. That's from Gene Sharp, a uh, famous scholar of nonviolent action, whose whose work I draw upon in my book, Unarmed Insurrection. Um, so that's a, t a term that Gene Sharp has used um, to denote the process that that you just described, rather than um, a moral. Um, uh, jiu-jitsu, it's political. It's undermining the political power of the state. It's engaging in tactics that may be difficult for the state to repress if enough people engage in those tactics. And it, it places, uh, I mean, it, not only does it maintain the moral high ground, if you will, on those who are engaging in nonviolence because people tend to prefer 
uh, you know, as, as someone walks into a room, if they see two people beating each other up, you don't stop and ask, well, who threw the first blow? You immediately, you know, want to stop both people and you consider both people equally wrong. But if you've got one person engaging in nonviolence and the other one engaging in violence, the onlooker sympathy is automatically drawn to the person engaged in, in nonviolence. And that's kind of the whole idea of, of the jujitsu is that you could actually win a competition uh, by engaging in, in principled nonviolence. Is that accurate? Um, yeah, basically you're using the force or the violence of the government um, to its disadvantage. Um, certainly governments are viewed um, as legitimate if they use violence against a violent challenge. When they use violence against an unarmed challenge, then that tends to decrease their, their legitimacy. The bulk of your book really takes a look at the context of uh, nonviolent actions. I want to get to that, but before we do, I want to um, bring up this this idea again of of mamby pamby and really throw <laughs> the, the scientific term and really throw out uh, any last misconception. Uh, you know, we discussed in the email one of the things I think that's is very very uh, scary, really, in uh, at least domestic activism uh, literature, which is what I I tend to focus on. Uh, there have been several books in recent years that have challenged the idea of nonviolence. Uh, books like Ward Churchill's Pacifism as Pathology or uh, Peter Gelderloo's How Nonviolence Protects the State, they refer to strategies of nonviolence as racist. And their point is basically that nonviolence tends to be the uh, strategy of choice of uh, U.S. activists, you know, who tend to be white, middle-class college students who claim to be in solidarity with the struggling masses around the world. And these authors suggest that the struggling masses around the world don't have the luxury of engaging in nonviolence. They're the ones who are actually risking life and limb. And so how can uh, U.S. activists, who are usually responsible for the violence that people in, in developing nations are facing, claim to be in solidarity while not risking anything? And to anyone who knows about nonviolence who reads that, it's just such a gross mischaracterization. I was wondering uh, if you wanted to comment on that. Um. Yeah, I I haven't read the um, the books that you mentioned, um, so I can't comment directly on those. But based on what you've said, um, your summarization, I could comment on that. Um, over the past couple of years, I have been studying land reform movements, and I've traveled to Brazil, India, and Thailand. And in those countries, the most marginalized and dispossessed segments of society are organizing themselves and engaging in social movements that depend primarily on methods of nonviolent action in order to promote social change. Um, for example, in Brazil, there's a very successful movement, the Landless Rural Workers, um, known by its Portuguese acronym MST. This is a very militant and radical movement. It challenges private property relations. It challenges the, um, the uh, agrarian policies in Brazil, which favor large agribusinesses. So it's a, it's a very militant and radical movement. Um, its main weapon is the unarmed land occupation, where it 
goes, um, it organizes landless people to occupy land in order to put pressure on the state to promote land reform. And this has been a very successful movement. And the people who participate are people that are the most disadvantaged, marginalized, dispossessed people in Brazil. Um, similarly, I've studied a movement in India called Ektaparishad, and actually this movement has been in the news lately because they've mobilized 25,000 landless people, people to march on New Delhi. And this is a Gandhian organization that relies on methods of nonviolent action in order to put pressure on the government to, to promote land reform. And this was just this past week, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, the it's the... The occupation in New Delhi is, is still occurring. Okay. Um, but these, these movements, they're movements from the, the third world or the global south. They're composed of the most disadvantaged people in the world, yet they're using methods of nonviolent action in order to successfully challenge the, the power structures within their respective societies. And, of course, George Lakey has uh, a great response to, uh, to this idea when he points out, uh, he's got a, a book or a little article that, that responds to these works, and he points out that, you know, certainly we can't refer to Gandhi as a, a white American middle-class college <laughs> student. We can't refer to Martin Luther King as such, or Cesar Chavez, or any of the folks working in the campaigns to which... Uh, let us now turn. Uh, so in the time remaining, uh, could you give us uh, a couple of summaries of uh, contexts or ways in which nonviolence has worked and a couple of uh, examples of where it hasn't worked and explain why? Okay. Um, in my book, I examine um, a few cases of successful unarmed insurrections and a few unsuccessful cases. Um, some of the successful cases would be the people power movement in the Philippines, which toppled the Marcos dictatorship in 1986, and the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa that um, led to democratization in, uh, in South Africa in the, in the early 1990s. Um, so those were both successful. Unsuccessful cases that I looked at were the Tiananmen Square pro-democracy movement in China in 1988, and the pro-democracy movement in Burma in 1988. And those were both um, large-scale, nonviolent mobilizations against the governments that were repressed and did not promote change. Okay, So certainly um, nonviolent rebellion, it, it isn't a panacea. There, there are certainly many cases where it has been unsuccessful. And in terms of making a, trying to distinguish distinguish between successful and unsuccessful cases, I think we can look at two broad sets of factors, one being the characteristics of the movements themselves, and then secondly, the broader political context in which the movement takes place. So with regard to movement characteristics, um, I found that the successful insurrections were led by umbrella organizations that were able to unite diverse strands of resistance throughout society. Um, these were movements that engaged in tactical innovation. That is, when the government responded with repression, they were able to shift their um, actions into other tactics that were less susceptible to repression. Um, the successful movements were able to implement a broad range of tactics, um, 
uh, non-cooperation, protest and persuasion, and um, intervention. Secondly, the political context is also important. Um, the successful, in the successful cases, those societies were characterized by a certain degree of political space within society. In other words, there was a certain degree of civil society space that permitted these groups, these um, challenging groups, to organize. Um, secondly, in the successful cases, the movement was able to put sufficient pressure on the ruling government such that elite divisions emerged. Um, there were conflicts among the elite that resulted from the, the power generated by the social movement and has contributed to their success. Um, also, international pressure okay, has, um, tends to play a role in the successful movements. If there's uh, pressure against the government, by international actors, then this is likely to increase the chances of the, the success of the unarmed insurrection. So it seems that there needs to be uh, flexibility in, uh, in strategies among uh, people power. There needs to be an ability to create some kind of political strife among the elite, and there needs to be an ability to garner uh, international support or sympathy for uh, a movement to succeed. Exactly. Okay, and what, so then it pretty much stands to reason that in the cases or the context when there isn't success of people power, you're, you're simply lacking those things. Uh, yeah, that's correct. So I thought it was very interesting talking about, uh, reading about Tiananmen Square. One of the things you, you noted is that, I mean, they were pretty much sitting ducks in, uh, in Tiananmen Square. What, mm -hmm. could you comment on that? Yeah, um, the, the successful movements are able to implement both methods of concentration and methods of dispersion. With methods of concentration, we have a large group of people concentrated in a public space, okay, such as um, in Tiananmen Square with regard to China. When the government responds with repression, then the movement must be able to shift to methods of dispersion. That is, that is methods that don't involve a concentration of people in one space, but yet when they're implemented, the, they can still undermine the power of the state. For example, a boycott um, or going on strike. Okay? It's difficult for the government to repress people who are engaged in a boycott compared to if they're sitting in a large public space. So one, one of the factors I suggest that contributed to the um, the failure of the Tiananmen Square movement in China was that it was limited to a, to a very narrow range of tactics, mostly methods of concentration, and it did not shift to methods of dispersion. And I know that we're just about out of time, but I think that that's, that's a really interesting point. You've got charts uh, in your book that show that uh, certainly violent uh, actions or, or, you know, rock throwings or however we want to characterize it can generate public uh, attention or international attention, but you don't see public support through sanctions and, and so forth until there are these nonviolent strategies. And I think um, 
you know, th- th- that's a really interesting point because, again, you get, uh, you tend to gain sympathy when you're engaging in strategies of, of nonviolence, but then also they're, they're very simple tactics. How does a government repress people who simply aren't spending money uh, at stores? I mean, that was particularly the case in, uh, in apartheid South Africa. Right. Uh-huh. <clears throat> well, we're just about out of time. I want to uh, see if you have any thoughts on uh, the situation in Burma today. I know that this isn't your area <clears throat> pardon me, of expertise, but one of the things that you do talk about and you just mentioned is that uh, the ability to gain international sympathy. And I think one of the things that listeners are familiar with when it comes to Burma or Myanmar uh, is how isolated it is, both geographically but but internationally. What can listeners do, or what do you recommend, or is there any way to to generate international actions to put pressure on uh, the regime? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. Um, I think that the the uprising in Burma that's occurring now, it does have some advantages to the movement that was repressed in 1988. That is, um, in 1988, Burma was extremely isolated, even more isolated than it is today. Today, there are other countries that could exert pressure on the government, substantial pressure on the government, um, where this wasn't the case um, back in 1988. For example, China, India, Thailand, those are countries that are in a position to put effective pressure on the military regime um, within Burma. Um, Also, there's a a broader network of activists in global civil society that are concerned with the, the Burma issue. Okay, and this this basically developed after the uprising was repressed in 1988, when um, Burmese students went abroad um, and began, you know, cultivating support for for the cause in Burma. So even though thus far the uprising in Burma has been suppressed, um, the current one, I think the the conditions are are a bit better compared to back in 1988. And certainly anything that that people could do to try to put pressure on their governments um, in order to pressure the military regime in Burma would 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 help the cause, definitely. And we'll have to leave it there. The book is Unarmed Insurrections, People Power Movements in Non-Democracies. It is available uh, as part of the Social Movements Protest and Contention series at University of Minnesota Press. And uh, Professor Schock, I want to thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Jared. It's my pleasure. Take care.